1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and I perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Evelyn. We're going to spend some time reflecting on this text that she read for us. Uh, but we've, we arrived. We did it. We made it all the way to the end of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's been a long letter. It's been a, a long uh, thing. I'm sure you're really excited to hear more about meat offered to idols in temples or something like that. But let's just say, now that we're at the, at the end of 1 Corinthians, what is the theme? If you were going to boil it down to a single phrase, a single idea, a single something, what would you say? Is it church unity? Is it the gospel applied to all kinds of situations? Maybe a clever person would just say, Jesus is the theme. Yes, you're very smart, very intelligent. Um, of course, the gospel applies to all situations. And of course, Jesus is sort of in and behind um, every word in this letter. But if we kind of get a little bit more specific than that, I think that Paul's great theme is love. Over and over, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians is he teaches them how to love each other. He says, here's what love looks like when it comes to battles for church unity. Here's what love looks like when it comes to dealing with sin. He tells them how to love people who are suing each other in the courts, uh, how, to, how, to, how to love people with whom they disagree with on substantial issues. He tells them how Christian love should change their worship services, how much wine they drink at the Lord's Supper. Remember that week? 
and how, how many times tongues should be spoken in a worship service. Love for the other. It's Paul's great theme. And as we saw in chapter 13, the famous chapter on love, this kind of love can only come from God. It's so self-giving, so self-sacrificial, it's so hard that this kind of love that Paul calls for can only be found in Jesus. And as we arrive at the end of the letter, it seems like, you know, at at first glance that chapter 16 is like this mysterious catch-all chapter. It's like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. One of those meals where you're eating pierogies and pineapple and olives and like it's all food, but it's not really like a meal. Is there something that's tying this all together? I mean, I think he is cleaning up some loose ends. He's making sure to get all the details out. But I think verse 14 is the controlling verse for this section. He says there, let everything you do be done in love, or let all you do be done in love. Every single thing. And by that, he means love doesn't just control the big things in life. It controls the little things as well. As, as much as we think about how love regulates our, our church worship services, so too it regulates things like travel plans, ministry ideas, how we work with others. Love is the thread that weaves its way through all of this. And, uh, this, and I think Paul lives by his words. And here's what he shows us this morning. I'll, we'll walk through it in three points here. First, love and finances. He talks about this collection that's going on. We'll talk about love and ministry ideas, how that relates to all of his travel plans. And then love and teamwork as he kind of names all these different people who are kind of in, involved in some way in the ministry in Corinth. But Paul begins with the words, now concerning. And we've heard that a few times in Corinthians. And what it means is he's addressing an issue the Corinthians asked him about. The church has written to him and said, hey, what what are we supposed to do about this collection for the other church in Jerusalem? And we see this come up in a couple different letters because presumably Paul was collecting in all sorts of places. But what what we know is that the Christians who are in Jerusalem were suffering terribly. They were suffering physically. Uh, There was a great famine in Judea. In fact, it was, it was kind of like two successive famines. But the church in Jerusalem, I mean the whole city, but the church was destitute and they were starving even. And so what Paul's doing as he travels and as he writes letters, he, he asks people, could you send money to Jerusalem, to these, to these other people of God who live there? And when you see that word saints in verse one, that doesn't mean like three or four really holy people. Uh, Paul uses that word to describe everyone in a church. He calls all of the Corinthian saints, you know, at the first point. Uh, But so he he wants money not to support all of them, not just like three people who are going to get this reward or whatever. But he says, I've already told the churches in Galatia, that's modern day Turkey, to do the same thing. He wants the Corinthians to gather money, to set it aside, and to eventually give it to messengers of their own choice who will take it to Jerusalem. Now, a couple of things stand out, I think, about the way Paul asks. First, this collection for the saints, it's not the same thing as regular tithes and offerings that supported the work of the church. This is a separate thing. It's an over and above thing uh, for a specific need that lay outside of the scope of the local church and actually provides a healthy model for churches like ours to follow. Sometimes we should and can and ought to take up offerings for causes that do not immediately concern us. Now, why? because it's a practical demonstration of love for the other. Remember back in chapter 13, Paul wrote, love is not self-centered, which means love is not only concerned with what directly affects us. So if our church, as we have in the past, if we go to raise funds for a church plant in Halifax, you know, with Mike and Britt, or, or, or a church restart in Sydney, Nova Scotia, or, or other things that do not directly, defect, do not directly affect us, um, it, it's a demonstration of love. It has everything to do with love. A collection for a church in a faraway place um, is is a demonstration of love. Secondly, this collection was being taken up mostly in a Gentile church to be given to a mostly Jewish church. 
And if you read the book of Acts, right around this time, there are a lot of tensions between Jews and Gentiles, even inside the Christian church, not like in the culture, but inside the church. They felt uneasy about each other. There was some sin issues. There was like these big church discussion meeting things to figure out what to do. But if we do everything in love, then as Paul told us again in chapter 13, love bears all things. Love believes all things. So Paul was telling them, believe the best about the church in Jerusalem, even if it's kind of awkward between you. Love should cross any kind of divide, cultural, racial, economic, whatever. Paul doesn't think for one second that cultural differences between churches or between people are a reason uh, to refuse to support the other. In fact, love by its very nature delights to create bridges between different groups of people. And third, we see that as Paul commands as an act of love, planned, disciplined, proportional giving. Now that's a lot of big words, so let me explain. He says, verse 2, the first day of the week, which he would have understood that as Sunday, the first day of the week, every person in the church should put something aside for the collection. That's planned giving. That's disciplined giving. It's not random. It doesn't matter how you feel in the moment. It's just like kind of like a steady drumbeat of giving. And it's in proportion to how you're prospering. There's no set amount, no set percentage. Paul says, hey, just look at how you've done in the past week, how much money you made that week. If you did really well, give a bunch of money. If you're losing money, you know, factor that in. Maybe you can't give anything that week. And don't just do that once. Do it every week, week after week, like a march, planned, regular, proportional giving. Now, depending on your personality type, that might not feel very loving. And I think in a lot of ways in our society, we've equated spontaneity with love. It may feel more loving to sort of give what you feel moved to in a particular moment. Maybe we think if we plan something, well, that's not as, as, as meaningful because you're trying to make yourself feel something. I'm not exactly sure. Perhaps spontaneous gifts feel more loving to you for some reason. Paul clearly thinks, though, that you can give or you can express love in, in planned, regular, proportional giving. And that kind of leads us into what we need to say a few times in this sermon, is that Paul takes something as mundane as your weekly budget and says, this too is an act of love. That, that too can be an act of love. There's no difference, in other words, between things we normally consider sacred, church things over here, and what we normally consider secular. When it comes to Christian love and Christian discipleship, what you do with your paycheck, that's just as important as what you sing on Sunday. Christian love extends to all of life, not just what you think of as churchy activities. Now, because Paul speaks about money, let me take a second to as well. Right now could be a good time for you to evaluate your giving, or if you give money at all. I don't actually know. <laughs> I don't follow that. I'm, a, I'm arm's length from these things at our church. But is your giving, whatever it is, is it as generous, as thoughtful, as proportional as what Paul commands here? And if you give nothing, if you give very little, well, here's a quick test that Jesus actually offers. Jesus says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he says, your pocketbook follows your heart. Your, your credit card statement, your bank account statement, that is an accurate assessment of what you love. So no matter what you say you love, no matter what you think you love, your financial activities tell you what you actually love. And we might even go so far as to say that your economic life more accurately portrays what you love than even your mouth does. So here's the test. And you can do this for real if you want. Give your financial statements, all of them for a month, to someone who doesn't know you. Just say, here they are. Here's what I've invested this month. Here's what I spent this month. Whatever kind of, whatever kind of economic things you're into, what would they conclude about what you love? What would they conclude about what you love? Uh, Paul tells us that Christian love shows up in giving to people who are unlike us, who can offer nothing to us, who live far away from us, but are in need. 
If we do everything in love, it shows up in our bank statements. Okay, second, love and his ministry ideas. If you look at verse five, he says he plans to visit them after passing through Macedonia. Now, most scholars think that Paul was writing 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. That's what verse eight seems to say. And I know geography is kind of tough to do in your head, but I'm gonna try for a minute. But if you picture the Mediterranean Sea, you know, it's kind of like a big oval on its side. And over here on the far side is Turkey, modern day Galatia, uh, um, sub-Asia, basically. In the middle is the Greek, Peninsula, and over here is like the Roman Peninsula. I'm doing it backwards too, so hopefully I have that all right. But anyways, basically Ephesus is on is in Galatia. It's it's on it's in Asia in modern day Turkey, um, and and Paul is saying basically that he's planning to take a boat from Ephesus up to Philippi, which is in the middle, and then travel overland down through the Greek peninsula, down through Macedonia to Corinth. Corinth was down at the bottom of the Greek peninsula, down near Athens, and a couple of those other places. That seems what, like what verse 5 is telling us. That's his, that's his coming plans. As you can see in verse 6, though, and he uses the word perhaps. And then in verse 7, he uses the word hope to characterize his plans, which means they're not definite, but they're open to change. Paul is heading out on some sort of epic adventure, a sailing slash road trip. And there's going to be unknowns along the way. But anyways, there's good evidence in verse 8 that he's in Ephesus, and Paul wants to stay there because he says that a wide door for effective work has been opened. Now, a couple thoughts on his travel plans and ministry ideas. Paul's future ministry ideas are characterized, and it's going to sound familiar, by a planned proactive strategy. He doesn't kind of bounce from one thing to the next. He isn't blown around by whatever he, wherever city he feels like going in that moment. No, he carefully considers his ministry, carefully considers his calling, and plans his future in light of it. And if Paul is indeed acting in love here, he finds it quite loving to plan ahead to plot a strategy, to inform people of his plans. Love is not increased by spontaneity. It can be just as loving to plan ahead. You may be aware that there are two kinds of people when it comes to road trips. The first kind of person is a person who likes to plan ahead. You know, they have all the top highlights written down. Okay, we're going to eat here. Here's how far we're going to go this day. Uh, and, and they're all kind of, they're very structured and planned. But the other kind of person leaves with just sort of a general direction in mind. Like we're just heading south, you know, towards Florida or something. And, and they like to react to whatever comes their way. Uh, oh, that looks fun. Let's stop there. Oh, that looks delicious. Let's eat there. Oh, we're making good time. Let's drive two more hours further tonight or whatever. And what happens is that these two people, like they marry each other usually, right? Or, or at least they become best friends. And, and you guys are all smiling because you've like, yes, we have taken road trips where we argue about all those things. Um, when it comes to Christian ministry, some people operate over here on, oh, let's see what comes my way today. Oh, a person to talk to. That's fun. Oh, uh, an unexpected phone call. That can be loving and that can be good. It's right to cultivate this posture of receptivity. Maybe something unexpected that God's doing, but it can be just as loving to plan ahead to set long-term goals. Like Paul's making winter plans. Maybe I'll be in Corinth for the winter. I mean, Southern Greece is a great place to spend the winter. So I think he's being quite strategic there. Uh, but, but this can be just as loving as being spontaneous. Most often we perceive whichever we are, well, that is more loving. That's probably more Christian, but both can be loving. Both can be Christian. But if you notice, secondly, Paul submits all his plans to the will of God. If you look at the end of verse 7, he says, you know, he's hoping to spend some time with the Corinthians if the Lord permits. And what Paul means by that is it's fine to lay plans. It's fine to make strategies for ministry. But ultimately, we believe that all, all of it is subject to the will of God. But it's important that he takes time to acknowledge it out loud. 
Because in the book of James, we're told there's actually two ways of making plans. And the one way is to make plans uh, born of pride and hubris, where we kind of overconfidently state, well, today I will do this, and then tomorrow that, and Thursday I will be in this city, and so on. And we can make plans as if God doesn't exist, as if he's not involved. But the other way is to make plans in the humble sense, which Paul does here, saying, these are the best plans I can make. I thought about it, I prayed about it, um, and ultimately, God may make the decision for us. He may close the door. I may get arrested in Macedonia. I don't know. We're, we're fine with that. We're only tethered to these plans uh, until God changes them. And third, Paul looks for what he calls wide doors for effective work. Now, if, you're, if you've been around church for a little bit, you may have heard this phrase, people saying, oh, I'm looking for an open door, or I sensed there was an open door. And maybe you've wondered, what door are they talking about? Like, is, is there a door problem? Do we need a locksmith here or something? Well, well, that's saying open door, looking for an open door. It comes from passages like this, where Paul, Paul uses the metaphor of a door to describe a person or a situation being open to God's work. I have my, I, my personal theory, actually, is that he's picking up on Jesus' words, where Jesus calls himself the door. But anyways, that's, that's just a theory. Having an open door, having a wide door, means that people are receptive to hearing the gospel. So he's saying, hey, in Ephesus, uh, God's giving me chances to share with people about Jesus and they want to hear. That's what we'd call an open door for an effective work. Now we use the open door often much more broadly than that, meaning oh, I found something on sale at the store or whatever. That, that's fine. But Paul is using it sort of to say he has a chance to share the gospel and people are responding. Now that's not the only thing he considers when it comes to ministry opportunities. He also wants to go to Macedonia. He has no idea what will happen there. He's already been to Corinth, but wants to go back. He considers lots of different things. But for us, when you think of your life, where does God seem to be making a way for the gospel? Is there a friend? Is there a person who seems to be interested in spiritual things? Is there a place where you can routinely speak about Jesus? Part of each of our internal calculus should revolve around, where does God seem to be working? What does God seem to be doing? And by the way, the presence of enemies, presence of adversaries, does not mean the door is not open. Paul's like, hey, there's a wide door for an effective work. And there are many adversaries. Both are true. Both are true at the same time. Uh, and so if Paul is doing everything in love, it means we can take these mundane things like travel planning, ministry ideas, the place we live, and apply a gospel filter to them. They are part of it as well. Now third, love and teamwork. One of the fun things about Paul's letter, I mean, at least I find it fun, are all the people he mentions right at the end. If you, especially if you go read the end of the book of Romans, uh, the whole last chapter is Paul being like, hi to this person, hi to that person. And there's just like 27 people listed or whatever, and he's passing along greetings. But if everything is done in love, what's he doing mentioning all these people? Well, let's take a quick look at who they are, and I'll give you a, a few lessons I think come out of here. In verse 10, Paul tells them, welcome Timothy, don't despise him. Now, despise there doesn't mean that everyone's going to think he's a bum or whatever. But rather, Timothy was young. We know he's probably like a late teenager, maybe you know, 17, 18, something like that, maybe even younger. And culturally speaking, you didn't listen to those people. You, you didn't honor them. If you were an older person, you didn't sit down and let a 17-year-old you know, explain things to you. But you kind of despise them by, by you know, kind of putting them in their place, like you know, sit down and be quiet till you're older type of thing. But if everything's done in love, Paul, Paul says, no, no, we, he wants Corinth to be a place that welcomes young people. And, and if Corinth is going to be a healthy church, it's going to need more than Paul. It's also going to take young guys like Timothy who come along for a season and speak into the life of the church. And then Paul says, and then they just kind of go on their way and they, and they return to some other place. In verse 12, we see Paul has been attempting to send Apollos to the church. 
Now, Apollos was a, a well-regarded speaker and teacher. We, we met him earlier in 1 Corinthians. Um, he's also skilled at public debate, fun fact about Apollos. And it says there, interestingly, Paul wanted him to come, but Apollos was like, not the right time. You know, or he's busy with something else. He may come in the future. And then in verse 15, Paul recognizes the household of Stephanus, which he also mentioned back in chapter 1 as people that he had personally baptized. But he tells the Corinthians, be subject to people like Stephanus, who have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And then he calls Stephanus and his household, he calls them fellow workers and laborers. Which is interesting, because Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus and their households, these aren't names that most of us know. Maybe you've never even heard of them before you came this morning. They aren't famous apostles. They didn't plant a lot of churches. They probably had other jobs. To me, these people seem a lot like lay elders or like people who spend a lot of time laboring in the church. From verse 17, it seems like these three especially were sent to Paul with a letter and possibly some other kind of support. All I'm saying is I think we can detect here in 1 Corinthians 16 a role that's different from the main preacher, the main pastor, the main church planter. It seems that Paul is sort of making room for, for lay people who want to devote themselves to, this, to serve the church. And he tells the Corinthians to treat them like they treat Paul, to be subject to them and to honor them. You should know that the elders of our church, the lay elders of our church, that's not me, because um, I'm paid, but the lay elders of our church who are not paid, who get no obvious external reward for the work, they put in a lot of time. They are devoted to our church. They visit people. They pray for people. There are a lot of extra meetings. They've read dozens, hundreds of pages of COVID bylaws. They, they've had difficult conversations and they all have other jobs. They all have a regular nine to five or whatever, uh, but they have devoted themselves to serving all of you. You should also know there are a number of women in our church who because of their life situation um, have time to serve extensively. There are some older women and some younger women too who give an extraordinary amount of time to our church and to the people of our church, cooking, cleaning, visiting, praying, mentoring, doing all sorts of things. And they too have devoted themselves to our church and most of it happens outside, out of sight. Now, I don't say that to make you feel bad about how much time you do or do not give. Some of you have like four toddlers or whatever and you're busy, but, I, but I'm trying to say uh, there there are people who are devoted to our church and they're just lay people. But Paul says we should, we should be subject to them. We should honor them for what they do do. There, there's sort of room for lay people to give leadership and, and we should, they should be respected for it. And then in verse 18, if you look there, Paul passes along greetings from churches in Asia, in Turkey, from, maybe from the church like Ephesus or Laodicea. And Paul says there's a church that's meeting in Aquila and Prisca's house, or Priscilla, it's written different ways. And they send, they send, they send robust greetings, like, like warm, hearty, like thick soup on a cold day, that sort of greetings. In short, what I'm trying to say here is what love looks like when it meets a local church is teamwork. That Paul isn't a lone soldier. He sort of blows in and preaches for a while and then kind of blows back out again and hopes that everything works it out. Paul and these other apostles, they're setting up this network of interdependent churches who are training new leaders and, and lay people are stepping up to fill new roles. There's like interns and young people flying different places. Letters and communication are being passed back and forth. And there's this genuine warmth and care and affection between the churches. Why do we have interns at our church? I mean, they're helpful, really, really helpful. You should know that. Uh, and they, they help us. But the driving force between, behind us having interns and giving them real chances to lead and to preach is because we want to help other churches besides our own. 
And we need sort of young Timothys sort of passing through. Maybe some of them stay long-term. I don't know. But the training of people for ministry beyond our city, that's part of what love looks like. Why are we Presbyterian? Now, I know most of you are sort of only like accidentally Presbyterian. Like you didn't really choose it. You kind of showed up here and we were or whatever. But from, from my point of view, I can tell you why we're one reason we are. It's because of weird chapters like this one where Paul clearly expects that the churches work together and love each other and give what they can to support each other. This is what's expected in the Christian church, that there's travel and communication and cooperation in the gospel. I don't want to be part of a church that's just our own little island and we bury our heads in the sand and do our own thing. I think we want to belong to other people. We want to work together with them. We want to share resources with them. We want to train people together. Remember, love doesn't burn with envy. That's what Paul said. It gives and it receives freely. Now, finally, Paul ends this letter by writing a sentence himself in verse 21. And I sometimes wish that Bibles, you know, would change the font. Because like, look, it's Paul, Paul's writing now. You know, someone different is there. Uh, in general, what we know is Paul dictated his letters. And then different, some scribe or whatever, a friend of his would write them down. And then he would sign his name kind of at the end. Sometimes he says, I'm writing it in really big letters so you know it's me or whatever. Paul's great concern if we understand that he wrote verses, you know, 21, 22, 23, and 24, his great concern is that all the Corinthians love Jesus. And, and he's worried about people who don't. That's the sum and the whole of his message. And I think sometimes, you know, in our kind of reformed tradition, we can get focused on only thinking the right things. And that's valuable. I'm not here to bash thinking and books and all that kind of stuff. But remember how Paul said in chapter 13 that you can give away piles of money and you can speak in tongues better than anyone else. And you can even go courageously to martyrdom. But if you don't have love, all that's just empty. It's just empty. And by the way, thinking only gets you so far. I mean, how many times have, have you messed up even though intellectually you knew what you should do? You knew you shouldn't gossip, but you can't stop. You knew you shouldn't envy, but you just got so frustrated at what someone else has. But if you and I, if we could learn to, write the, learn to love the right things in the right order, we, we'd be perfect. So Paul's great hope for us is that we love God and love our neighbors. And that is, of course, the great pursuit of life. But it begins by understanding verse 23, and we'll kind of finish with this, that the grace of the Lord Jesus is with us. Christian life, Christian love begins by understanding that we've been offered love in Christ Jesus. Because, of course, it's going to be hard to give away money. Of course, it's going to be hard to arrange our ministry ideas around the needs of other people. Of course, it's going to be hard to work in teams. That's precisely why you need to understand that Christ has loved you first. If you find yourself lacking love this morning, or perhaps if you find yourself on the outside of Christianity looking in and wondering, why are they doing all this stuff? The only way to understand it is to understand that Christ, the love of Christ has come to us first. Imagine a beach, each of us like a tiny pebble on the beach. A Christian is a person who is lying there on the beach, and at some point, the love of Jesus came in like a wave, big wave, and as it receded back to the sea, it sort of dragged the pebble along with it. And now Christians are people who are sort of caught up in the oceans of God's love, and we're freely extending it because it came to us first. So let me end with Paul's closing. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all of you, be with all of us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians. Thank you for inspiring the Apostle Paul to write it. Thank you for preserving it through the years for us to read now. May it go deep into our hearts. May we continue to understand and apply it and live by it. And may your grace increasingly come to us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.